Thanks, Kevin. We'll come now to our Bible reading. You may want to have your Bible open in front of you. The reading today is from James 1, 1 to 18. So James 1, 1 to 18. Let's read together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered amongst the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot, tempt, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it, is, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be, be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That's God's word. Friends, uh, as we look at the book of James, I want to start with these words, true faith works. Uh, because what uh, James wants us to know is that if you have a faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to work itself out in how you behave. You see, it changes who we serve. It changes how we live. It changes how we treat people. It changes how we pray. It changes how we face trials and temptations. You see, true faith works. Now, it's tough facing trials, isn't it? We all prefer comfort and safety, I know I do. But we must know how to face trials, for they will come, don't we know that? But in our sovereign God, we can have confidence in, for He will use our trials for our growth and for our maturity. He will use COVID and cancer and financial stress and opposition he will use it for our good and for his glory. I read this very powerful testimony by a woman named Bronwyn Chin. She wrote this in June 2002. Her husband was the national director of the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. He worked as a chaplain at the Wollongong University. And she says, I thank God for the gift of cancer. She says, I don't like being in pain and I don't like having terminal pancreatic cancer. 
I would like to grow old with my husband and see my kids grow up. But God appears to have a better plan. I know that he is faithful. His plans are the best and do not revolve around me. Acts 13.36 says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. When God has done what he wants through me, I will die in his perfect timing, she says. Well, why has God given me cancer? Maybe it is to make me repent of my wrongs and turn to Jesus. It has certainly done this. Maybe it is to make me talk more to my friends and family about Jesus. It has certainly done this. Maybe it is for reasons way beyond my understanding. It is certainly at least this. All I know is that God has given me this gift of cancer to use for his glory. We pray daily for the cancer to miraculously go away. But if God chooses to say no, we can trust him nonetheless. It's still hard to really grasp that I'm only here for a little while. But as the Bible teaches, all men and women are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. When I was suddenly diagnosed in December 2009, it was a total shock. I had no idea that I was sick. My life at that time involved being a busy wife, a mother of four active children, they were 9, 12, 14 and 15, and a part-time GP. Widespread pancreatic cancers had a very bad reputation and my oncologist originally gave me a prognosis of three to six months to live. However, God has other ideas and my cancer has partially responded to chemotherapy. For the last two and a half years, I've received chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery and live with ill health knowing that I have a time bomb inside me. My family have become experts at coping with regularly, me regularly vomiting and being bed-bound at times from the different treatments. As the cancer keeps spreading throughout my body, I'm very aware that Jesus is my Lord and Saviour in whom I can depend and that all other ground is sinking sand. I'm so grateful to God for everything. I am thankful for who God is, His majesty, His splendour, and his promises. I am thankful for my family, my friends, and my life. I'm so thankful to God for the resurrection of Jesus, which means I have victory over death and don't need to fear death or pain or the dying process. It's such a comfort to read, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a few other things and then concludes with this. Leaving my husband and four gorgeous children grieves me greatly. It makes me cry every time I think about it, even as I write. However, I know God will take care of them. Please pray that each of them will continue to trust God into eternity. So I thank God for this gift of cancer because he is good and he is using it for his purpose. The plans of the Lord are perfect, even if I don't know the reasons for everything. All I know is that soon I will be with the Lord forever, because Jesus alone has saved me through his death and resurrection. I hope to see you all there, she writes.
Ramon Chin went to glory the next year. Friends, the book of James begins with this important topic. And many people love this book for it is full of practical advice for Christian living. But they struggle with the first few verses. We love James, but we're not too sure about the trials and the sufferings. But I do remember a friend saying to me once that she didn't like studying the book of James. I said, that's unusual. Most people like it. It's pretty practical, some theology and some practical Christian living. I said, I know it's so practical, it exposes my failures, it exposes my sins, it exposes how badly I'm doing in my walk with Jesus. I trust in Jesus, but I'm not living it out. And I get convicted by God. I said, well, maybe you ought to read it a bit more often, I said. And friends, we will see later that the standards and morality of the world have penetrated the church. So James calls the church to repent. Repent from its worldliness and to humble themselves before the Lord who can make the changes. May God open our eyes to see and our minds to understand this very important letter. James begins, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings, he writes. The author, we're told, is James. Some uh, debate about which James. There are a number of James in the Bible. But most of the evidence points to James, the Lord's brother, the leader of the Jerusalem Council, and we see in Acts 15.13, and a prominent leader in the church. We see him mentioned multiple times. The recipients are the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, scattered in the dispersion. Now, what's he referring to there? Again, two options here. It may be a reference to the Jewish Christians that had been scattered because of persecution, or it may be symbolically used, 12 tribes, to represent the new people of God. We're not quite sure. The date of writing, some dated in the early 60s, while others favor a date before AD 50. And because it seems to have a strong Jewish nature, uh, there doesn't seem to have been any controversy yet over circumcision. And the Greek term synagogue is used to designate the meeting or meeting place of the church. So it may be uh, an early writing by James, the Lord's brother. But he does begin encouraging people to face trials with biblical wisdom. And first it says, consider it pure joy, verses 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials of many kinds. What does he mean by that? Well, poverty, sickness, oppression, persecution, gossip, slander, maybe cancer. He acknowledges that we will face trials of many kinds, all different types. And then he says, consider it pure joy. Well, you think, well hold on, I'm not thinking joy when I'm suffering. I'm not thinking joy when I've lost all my money. I'm not thinking joy, right? We may put a good face on them, and, but really underneath we're hurting, we're suffering. What do you mean? Well, he doesn't say it is joy. Notice this. He said, consider it pure joy. Count it pure joy. In other words, God wants us to take a specific step of faith, make a, a, a definite decision to take up a joyful attitude. That's the point. 
you're in the middle of this, don't just speak misery all the time, but make a decision to say, God is able to work in this situation for my good and for his glory, and therefore I will consider it pure joy. Friends, that's a decision you make with the help of God and the power of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the only way you can make that decision is when you have the wisdom of God. The only time you can consider suffering as pure joy is when you have a biblical perspective. And that's why I think later he urges him to pray for wisdom. You see, the perspective, the biblical perspective is this. The trials and difficulties are God's appointed ways to develop in us perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. In other words, if you don't go through difficulties, you, become, you remain weak as a Christian. You haven't learned perseverance. You haven't learned endurance. You haven't had to go through the hard yards. You haven't come out the other side. And for many of us, when life is easy, we don't develop backbone, spiritual backbone. And God says, when you go through these difficulties, you become mature, you become complete in Him, perfect, which is the whole idea of mature or the word teleos, which means lacking nothing. You see, we have a similar theme in Romans 5. So it's not just James who says this. The Apostle Paul says this. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. He doesn't say counter joy now. He says we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character. This is godly character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Friends, we live in a sinful, fallen world where difficulty, suffering and death affects the whole human race, Christian and non-Christian. But God uses our trials, if we have eyes to see and hearts to understand, to make us more like his son Jesus. I am thankful to God that in the early years of my Christian life, my family opposed my faith and many others opposed my faith. I'm thankful to God because having to endure the opposition, having to study the Bible more intently, having to go to God in prayer more regularly, having to speak courageously the gospel, it built me up in my faith, made me more mature, more complete in Christ. It developed a thick skin. I call it the spiritual thick skin. And it prepared me well for pastoral ministry, by the way. Because you go into pastoral ministry, you, you need to be prepared for rejection and opposition and even hatred by people that you love and you serve. Don't go into ministry or even pastoral ministry if you're looking for everyone to love you and to have your back, because that is not the case. In fact, I've discovered often the people that you've often most invested in due to their pain and their need will ultimately reject you and sometimes even slander you. But you see, there's this spiritual thick skin, as much as it hurts, that God gives us when we go through the hard times. Remember Johnny Erickson Tata, who became a quadriplegic in her teenage years, said, I do not care if I'm confined to a wheelchair Provided from it, I can bring glory to God. Frank Retief, the pastor of what was then the St. Uh, James Church in South Africa, 
when his church went through a massacre, where at an evening service people attacked his congregation, a large congregation with guns and hand grenades. There were 11 people who died, 50 injured, many maimed for life. He wrote, in times of great trial, God is especially close to his people. There is a special grace that is given to those who go through the furnace of affliction. If you're going through a hard time today, a trial and tribulation, there's a special grace that is given to those who go through the furnace of affliction. God is there for you. God is there for me. And secondly, wisdom helps us to view trials as pure joy. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. As James continues this introduction to his letter, you've got to ask the question, why does he talk about wisdom here? He just talked about trials and, 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 and difficulties and, and enduring and trusting God and all that. Why does he talk about wisdom? Well, friend, as I alluded to earlier, it's only through the wisdom of God that you can perceive that what the world calls misfortune is an opportunity for God to work in your life to make you more like Jesus. The outsiders go, wow, you must be, God must be judging you. God must be, God mustn't like you when you're going through those sufferings. No, when you have the wisdom of God, you see that God is at work to make you more like his son. God is at work in you to prepare you for eternity. See, we ask for wisdom with faith. So we have the mind of God and the discernment of God as we face life's difficulties. It says, don't doubt when you pray for wisdom. Don't be a double-minded person or literally a double-souled person whose loyalty is divided between God and the world. And we'll see James addresses the fact that many people are following the world rather than God. Don't be double-minded. Don't have your heart or your soul in two places. You will receive nothing. You won't receive the wisdom of God if that's what you're like. Friends, I've met many people who claim to be Christians who when they face trials of all kinds, are shocked that God would let this happen to them. They are shocked that they would suffer. They are shocked that they should get cancer, that a loving God would allow them to have it or give it to them however you want to express it. And let me suggest to you that they are shocked and they are surprised because they do not yet have the wisdom of God as revealed in the Scriptures. Secondly, I've met many others, despite the shock of the uncertainty of having received that news, trust in God's sovereign goodness. They know that God is at work, that God does not leave or abandon his people, never forsakes us, that God is working in all things for the good of his people, for the glory of his name. And may that be our experience. Do not be surprised by suffering of all kinds. It is God's appointed way to purify the church and make us like Jesus who suffered and died for us. Thirdly, there's the trial of poverty and wealth. It says believers in humble circumstances, well, and that would be part of a trial, wouldn't it, if you're in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation 
says, they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Again, sometimes people are perplexed and why James now just talks about the poor and the rich. He'll address the poor and the rich later in his letter again. Why does he just throw these lines in here? Is it consistent with what he's talking about? Well, remember, he's been talking about trials, and he returns to the theme of trials in verse 12. Trials in 2 to 4, trials in verse 12. So everything, I think, between those verses is on the same theme. Contrasting circumstances of life are evidenced in poverty and wealth. Some people are poor, some are wealthy. And he wants to say that life is full of trials, poverty and wealth. They can both be trials. See, the person in poverty, in humble circumstances in the world's terms, should see his position from God's terms, a high position, a relationship with God, with eternal hope. And so when I see some of my brothers and sisters in in the developing world, right throughout Africa or, or Asia, and they have so little, yet they have Jesus, and they laugh and they dance and they celebrate the beauty of knowing Jesus. And the trials that come their way, although they are poor, they are rich. And then there's the rich brother. Notice he calls him a brother, by the way. Should take pride in his low position. In other words, if you're a believer and you were rich, don't get arrogant. Don't think that you're a self-made person, that you earn so much and you can buy so much and you can travel so far. No, take pride in your low position. And even though the world holds you in high esteem, be humble enough to recognize that you are a miserable sinner who also needs God's grace and forgiveness. You have everything, just remember that you're a miserable sinner who needs God's grace and forgiveness too. You should recognize that your wealth is transitory. You should seek the wisdom of God to live, live life from God's perspective reading the story of a fellow called Lee Atwater. He was the ca- campaign manager for George Bush on the 1988 US presidential campaign. And he was a great success by the standards of the world. But after he was diagnosed with cancer of the brain, he began to reflect upon his life. He had everything and all of a sudden a trial hits him. And this is what he wrote. The 1980s were about acquiring Acquiring wealth, power, and prestige. I know. I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power I wouldn't trade for a little more time with my family. What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with my friends? It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth. But it's the truth that the country caught up in ruthless ambitions and moral decay can learn on my dime. I don't know who will lead us through the 90s, but they must be made to speak of this spiritual vacuum at the heart of the American society, this tumor of the soul. I don't think much has changed since then. He was rich, yet he realized he was terribly poor. He needed to realize that he needed rescuing. Fourth, find blessing by persevering under trial. 
Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. James says, persevere, will you? Pass the test. Keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep living for Jesus. And you'll receive a crown of life. It's probably a reference to the laurel wreath given to the victorious athlete. And it symbolizes glory and honor. You've done well. You've finished the race. Here's a reward from God. In the midst of suffering and temptation, you have kept the faith. My friends, let me say that even when enduring the trial means physical death, life is the reward for those who love God. Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. All around the world, believers are dying for Jesus. In Afghanistan, in Nigeria, in Uganda, so many in Burkina Faso, Faithful to the point of death, they receive the crown of life as a gift from God. But there's something about the death of believers that spurs others up to live for Christ. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper tells of the impact of the death a martyr, a Wycliffe missionary, Chet Bitterman. Now it says, the execution of Chet Bitterman by the Colombian guerrilla group M19 on March the 6th, 1981, unleashed amazing zeal for the cause of Christ. He said Chet had been in captivity, he had been uh, kidnapped and in captivity for seven weeks. His wife, Brenda, and his little daughters, Anna and Esther, had waited in Bakota to see what would happen. The demand of this guerrilla group was that the mission organization Wycliffe should leave Colombia. Get out of Colombia. And one day, the guerrillas shot this Christian missionary before dawn, a single bullet to the chest. Police found his body in the bus where he died, in a parking lot in the south part of the town. He was clean and shaven. His face was relaxed. The gorilla, a guerrilla banner wrapped his remains. They wrapped their own guerrilla banner around him. Thankfully, there was no sign of torture. It says, in the year following Chet's death, applications for overseas service with Wycliffe Bible translators doubled. When one person gave his life for the glory of Jesus, it raised up a whole new generation of missionaries saying, we will go in his place. We will go and, and suffer for Christ. And that continued into the future. Piper writes, is not the kind of missionary mobilization that any of us would choose. But it's God's way. Unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 24. Fifthly, resist temptation with a good honoring perspective. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I want to just let you in on a secret here. It's not really a secret, but if you know the Greek here, 
it's the same Greek word that's used to, that we translate trials in verses 2 and 12 that is translated temptation in verse 13 and 14. All right, so the same word, one place we translate it trials and another place temptations. It's trials, testings, temptations. Now when the difficulty is external, like comes to us, opposition and illness, we call it a trial, we call it a testing. It's something that comes from outside of us. Now, when the difficulty is internal, comes from within, we call it a temptation. It's a testing or a trial from inside of us. And if we give in to this internal pressure, we sin. Now, God brings trials that is external difficulties to us. He does it at times to test us in intense in the sense of testing or providing metal, making us stronger through the fire, and God refines us. But God does not bring temptation, the Bible says. That is our own internal and sinful reaction to difficulties in other situations. God doesn't tempt anyone. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does, it, nor does he tempt anyone. So we can't blame God for our sin. So, well, God, you made me do it. You let it happen to me. It's not my fault, God. No, no, no. Things come our way. But if you give into it, that is your own sin at work. If someone oppresses us at work and we fight back with revenge, that's our fault. That's sin. If someone mocks our faith in Jesus and we retaliate with abuse or violence, that's my sin. If I look at and desire and lust after someone else's wife, it's not God's fault that he put someone else's wife in my eyesight. It's my fault. Don't blame God for your sin. We are morally responsible for our temptations, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Anger leads to hate, leads to violence. Lust leads to pornography, leads to immoral behavior. Jealousy leads to slander, leads to fights. Love of money leads to deception, leads to theft. You see, so it starts in your mind, your desire, and then you act on that desire, and you give in to your temptation. So we need to guard ourselves with the Word, by prayer, with the fellowship of God's people, with the wisdom of God, through accountability, that we would resist temptation and we not give in to it. And one, one of the, the best ways to resist temptation is to resist it immediately. Impure thought comes, resist it immediately. Impure desire comes, resist it immediately. Say, no, you have no place here. And focus on the good things of God, what is right and pure and noble and honorable. Immediately that temptation comes. Don't give the devil an opportunity to work that temptation in your heart. And don't place yourself in situations that would lead to sin. And finally, rejoice in the good gift of new birth. God is the giver of good gifts and is reliable. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly light, who does not change like shifting shadows. God doesn't bring you temptation. He brings you good gifts, right? So and he wants to make it clear to them, you're worried about God tempting you. No, 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 God gives you good things. God is the one who's going to bless you. 
And the biggest blessing is this. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Through the gospel, Christ's death and resurrection, Christ's death for our sins and our failures, where he died in our place, and through the word of truth, we've been born again. We are new people now. As new people, we don't live like we did in the past. We live submitting to God and surrendering to God. We live with joy and with hope and with purpose and with perseverance and with faith because true faith works. Don't blame God for temptation, he says, but thanking for all the good things he has given you, especially new birth, especially salvation through Christ. And we are the first fruits of all he created, he says to them. Back in the first century, maybe AD 50, in other words, it's a symbol that as, as the first fruits came, there's more harvest or the harvest is ready to come. In other words, we are the extra ones. The first fruits of these new believers point forward to a future harvest. And friends, you and I are part of that harvest. And a week or so ago, Tutsi Karafalov went to be with Jesus. Margaret's her name and everyone called her Tutsi. And uh, she was 79. But she, she was someone who was born again, trusted in Jesus, and received the good gifts of God, was a changed person. And on September the 30th, the day before she went to glory, she was lying in a hospital bed. Some of you may have seen it on Facebook. And her husband, George, asked her, uh, she wanted to sing and was thinking about what to sing, and she sang a hymn singer lying in a hospital bed the day before she went to glory. This is a woman who experienced new birth in Jesus, a woman who encouraged us, who had the sense of joy and hope despite some difficulties in her life. She trusted in Christ. And the song she sang was this one, Happiness is the Lord. Happiness is to know the Savior living a life within His favor. Having a change in my behavior, happiness is the Lord. Happiness is a new creation, Jesus and me in close relation. Having a part in his salvation, happiness is the Lord. And the bit that she sang, that I remember on the Facebook, is this verse. Real joy is mine, no matter if teardrop starts. I found the secret, it's Jesus in my heart. Final verse, happiness is to be forgiven living the life that's worth the living, taking a trip that leads to heaven. Happiness is the Lord. Happiness is the Lord. Happiness is the Lord. Real joy is mine. No matter if teardrops start, i found the secret. It's Jesus in my heart. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you that the secret is Jesus in our hearts. We are born again through the word of truth, we receive good gifts from you, forgiveness, salvation, relationship, fellowship, material blessings, physical blessings. But we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of that, even you allow trials and temptations to, to come our way. But through the trials, Lord, you grow us to be more like Jesus. And so we ask that you would give us faith and courage, that we would have the wisdom we need to face the trials we face, the difficulties we face. And Lord, when temptations come our way and when uh, the sin, uh, when we are enticed by our sinful nature, 
to disobey you, to go our own way. That we would say no to the sinful nature, we would say yes to the Spirit of God, that we would be led by the Spirit and walk in holiness and godliness. Lord, may our faith truly work as evidence of our relationship with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.